All right, uh, so I believe this will be the last opportunity you'll have to fellowship with my daughter, Beth, as she'll be heading out to South Carolina uh, this next week. She'll be teaching uh, Spanish in the public high school, Lord willing, finding a place to live. Uh, but uh, Beth, we appreciate you and your ministry. Uh, been a very fruitful one. Um, her landlady, Roseanne, uh, had some conversations with her. And then uh, Beth was starting to teach school and handed that off to me. And Roseanne came to know the Lord as Savior. And Roseanne's in heaven now. And so we praise the Lord for that investment. And then uh, Massman's are here. And I know Isabel was in her class and made a profession of faith. Some other kids as well. So it's been a very fruitful time. And um, the kids love you. We do too. But uh, we're going to miss you. All right, if you have your Bibles today, I want to... Uh, invite you to open up to Genesis chapter 2. So you don't have to go far at all. And uh, we're going to have a short series on uh, divorce and remarriage. Any intelligent conversation on divorce has to start with marriage. And so today what we want to do here with the big idea is to learn what the foundational meaning of marriage is but the foundational elements of marriage, what they involve. And um, now I know from having shepherd congregation in, in this congregation, this is a, a heartfelt series, uh, one that many of you uh, bear deeply upon your heart. And so I'm just going to teach the truth in love and compassion but I'm going to teach the truth. And um, sometimes the great pain that you've gone through in your life, um, it hurts. I understand that. So I'm not going to try to be rude to you or demeaning in any way. Quite the opposite. I hope to show you the grace of God and encourage you and strengthen uh, you as a believer in the Lord. And so whether you're in your first marriage or any other marriage, if you're married, praise God and stay in that marriage. Amen? That's what God wants you to do. So I know this can be very sensitive uh, to listen to, but uh, listen, we live in a day and age where if the church fails to teach the biblical concept of marriage, and by the way, I think this is the only place that the true meaning of marriage is being taught this day and age because you're not going to find that in society. Um, marriage has got all kinds of different definitions in society. So if the church doesn't do it, then we can certainly know that society that has a humanistic view will teach their theories and their ideologies. And our youth will be hurt because we as the church are not standing for truth. So for the sake of our youth who are not married, who are looking forward to getting married, uh, we want to teach this. And we want marriages to be strong and healthy and vibrant. And uh, we want you uh, as a married person to enjoy your spouse, your companion of your youth. So it is with that that we move forward in our series uh, here on marriage and divorce, um, the foundational meaning and elements of marriage. So it would be unthinkable for us as Christians to stand by and to be silent when there's so much confusion that takes place. The other thing that I've encountered uh, many times is people get saved, they come into the church, and they wonder, how do I fit in? It, you know, and so many times they're, they're bringing their past and they look at it as if, well, I can't do anything because my past has been so checkered. Well, that's not true. All right. There's all kinds of things that we can do for the Lord. So let's not let the world teach this. So before we can talk about divorce, we have to begin with marriage today. And so churches seem to operate in extremes on this particular topic, um, they, they don't teach on it or they go to really critical and harsh teaching and in extremes. Uh, I've been part of a group in the past that I believe held an extreme position on this and I think that 
it was not charitable or gracious. And so when people came into their churches, um, they weren't welcome. They were looked down upon as just second-class Christians. And that wasn't what I think they were intending to do, but that was definitely what the position that they had in writing communicated. So we want to glorify Christ as being as scriptural as we can be. And this is one of the things that the deacons have asked me to, to teach and preach on. So we're going to do that. So would you please uh, ask God for help right now to set aside your emotions, um, no matter where you are on the spectrum of marriage, divorce, and remarriage, because you're going to need God's grace to listen and to receive it and then to give grace as you encounter people that have different experiences than you. So Christians, new Christians, want to know, what does the Bible teach on this subject? So that's what we want to do. We want to teach what the Bible teaches. And, of course, we've gone through the, the, the foundational series for this, the categories of Christian teaching. So I want to present to you what is truly clear and biblical on this area of marriage today. Because I know that you want to be able to distinguish between social concepts, uh, between church traditions and what the Scripture teaches. So I know that you want to practice your faith biblically and you want to honor Christ. So let's look at this today. In Genesis chapter 2, we see the first marriage. We see the creation of marriage. Now, you know the book of Genesis is not necessarily laid out chronologically. Um, Genesis chapter 2 is not just following Genesis chapter 1. It goes back and reviews the details of Genesis 1 and then gives further clarification. Um, So God had made Adam last. The animals were made before Adam. But yet God brought all of the animals before Adam. And verse 20 says, And Adam gave names to all cattle and to the fowl of the air and to every beast of the field. But now look at verse 20. But for Adam there was not found a helpmeet for him. Now I'm going to oversimplify it and say he saw Mr. and Mrs. Elephant, Mr. and Mrs. Giraffe, Mr. and Mrs. whatever, Eagle, And then he's like, but where's my missus? And he was missing something. Um, The Hebrew was actually very specific that Adam approached this with a very scientific process. He studied the bone structure of the animals to give their names. And so we see that as he goes through this process, he figures out that he is alone. So verse 21, and the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon Adam, and he slept, and he took out of one of his ribs and closed up the flesh instead thereof. And the rib which the Lord God had taken from man made he a woman and brought her unto the man. And Adam said, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Verse 24, therefore shall a man leave his father and his mother and shall cleave unto his wife, and they shall be one flesh. And they both were naked, and the man and his wife, and were not ashamed. Marriage is not an invention of society. It's not an invention of humanity. Marriage is God's idea. And so if you're a married person in here today, um, hey, listen, this is exciting. You get to fulfill God's plan for your life. And so it's very exciting. And so God put Adam under general anesthetic and knocked him out. And he wakes up. Here's his beautiful helpmeet. The one that he noticed was missing before. And there she is. And so the Lord presented. He was the first officiant of a wedding. And he said, Adam, here's your wife. And so Adam was excited and gave her the name of Eve. And the Lord then shows us the pattern 
of what he intends after the first marriage in verse 24. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and shall cleave unto his wife, and they shall be one flesh. So that's the pattern. The husband-wife relationship is stronger than the parent-child relationship. Um, Let me just say this. I've also done guidance and advice and counseling for people who have marriage issues where either they're investing more in their children um, or they're investing more in their parents than they are in their spouse. And either side of that, it causes problems because God wants you to leave your parents. And so that shows us that the marriage relationship needs to be the primary relationship. And then you focus upon your spouse and you bind together with them. And so Adam was lonely and it was described as not good. If you have paid attention to reading Genesis 1 and 2, at the every conclusion of the day of creation, God said, and it was good, and it was good, and it was very good. This is the only thing that God says it's not good. Loneliness is not good. And so God made, not a mistake, but God made Eve for Adam to defeat his loneliness because it was not good for him to be alone. So, some other things for our society which seem to be, I think, the obvious but needs to be restated. Uh, Notice with me, therefore, in verse 24, a man shall leave and cleave unto his wife. And so marriage is a man and a woman. Amen? And uh, that's just what God states. Now, as I said before, uh, this may be the last place that this is taught in society, but that's God's definition of marriage. And so in this, we will see uh, some of the foundational elements and the meaning of marriage. Um, But now we have a situation that takes place over in Genesis 24. There's another couple that comes together to start their family. So I invite you to go to Genesis chapter uh, 24. So let me say here, first of all, this is our first point. Marriage is a contract, a commitment of a man and a woman. And so we're going to look at these different verses here in Genesis 24. But here's a grace affirmation. I will willingly remain committed to my spouse. So you stay in that relationship. And that's God's grace for you. So marriage is that contract or commitment then of a man and a woman in this marriage relationship. All right, so in Genesis 24, what has happened is... Abraham is finding a bride for his son, Isaac. Um, His wife has died. Isaac's mother has died. And so there's a need here for Isaac to find a a bride. And so it says Abraham was old and well-stricken in age, and the Lord had blessed Abraham in all the things. And Abraham said unto his eldest servant of his house that ruled over all that he had, Put, I pray thee, thy hand under my thigh, and I will make thee swear by the Lord, the God of heaven and the God of the earth, that thou shalt not take a wife unto my son of the daughters of the Canaanites among whom I dwell. But thou shalt go unto my country and to my kindred and take a wife unto my son Isaac. And the servant said unto him, Preadventure the woman will not be willing to follow me unto this land. Must I needs bring thy son again unto the land from whence thou camest? And Abraham said unto him, Beware that thou bring not my son thither again. And the Lord God of heaven, which took me from my father's house and from the land of my kindred, which spake unto me, and that swear unto me, saying, Unto thy seed will I give this land. He shall send his angel before thee, And thou shalt take a wife unto my son from hence. 
And if the woman will not be willing to follow thee, then thou shalt be clear from this my oath, only bring not my son hither again. And the servant put his hand under the thigh of Abraham his master and swear unto him concerning this matter. Now, it's not typically how we are, go about marriages in our society, so in our culture. Now, in other countries, you would call them arranged marriages. Right? But Abraham delegated this responsibility to his chief servant and said, I want you to promise me that you will take a wife for my son Isaac cannot be a woman from the land of Canaan. It must be uh, of my family uh, back in Mesopotamia where I came from and you cannot take my son back there because God has told me to leave that place so our family has to stay here in the land that God has promised to us. So Abraham wanted to remain in the place of blessing. He wanted his children to be in the place of blessing. So he's then given his servant a very serious task of finding a wife for a son. And of course, the servant is thinking very logically. Um, okay, right. So you want me to travel hundreds of miles and find a young girl to be your son's wife. What if she's not willing to come? So he's already thinking through, is this plan going to work, you know? Is this how you're really going to find a wife for your son? I'm kind of skeptical here, Abraham. And Abraham basically says, you can't take my son there. No, all right? You've got to do it this way. God will send his angel. God will lead you in the way. God will show you who it is. Okay. So he loads up all the supplies, all right? So let's look at verse uh, 10, and the servant took 10 camels of the camels of his master and departed, for all the goods of his master were in his hand, and he arose and he went to Mesopotamia unto the city of Nahor. All right. Why do you think 10 camels? Just give me some feedback. Loaded with all of his master's goods. Why do you think? Gifts a dowry, all right? That was the cultural custom of entering into a contract. Are you with me? All right, so that's why I have up there a contract. Now, in our culture, uh, we don't necessarily ask the bride's family for a dowry, even though some dads would really appreciate that, right? Uh, we, we don't do that, all right? But we do enter into contract when we get married. You file taxes, either jointly or separately, uh, but you do file under the status of married. Uh, your bank accounts and, and so forth. So there's all kinds of contracts that we have in society. Uh, in our culture, the woman usually takes the man's surname and changes her name. So then there's legal documents. All kinds of contracts are, are being taken place. A marriage certificate uh, with the state is usually drawn up and then filed and held on record. So there's all kinds of proceedings, contractual proceedings that take place in marriage. Uh, they didn't have government to do that back then. They did this between families. So they're showing what's going on here. Now verse 11, and he made his camels kneel down without the city by a well of water at the time of the evening, even at the time when the women go out to draw water. And the servant begins to pray, verse 12, O Lord God of my master Abraham, I pray thee, send me good speed this day and show kindness unto my master Abraham. God help, <clears throat> be kind to my master Abraham. Please help me find a bride for his son Isaac. Help me. Behold, I stand here by the well of water, and the daughters of the men of the city come out to draw water. And let it come to pass that the damsel to whom I shall say, Let down thy pitcher, I pray thee, that I may drink. And she shall say, Drink, and I will give thy camels drink also. 
Let the same be she that thou hast appointed for thy servant Isaac, and thereby shall I know that thou hast showed kindness unto my master. So he's <clears throat> has at least enough faith to pray to the God of his master. He's looking for some definite direction here, some very specific direction. Do you know that we can pray specifically to God? And we can get those things very specifically that we want. I know I've shared the baseball story with you before. I love sharing it with the kids in junior high and high school. But one night, uh, just very quickly, my father was out visiting and we had three generations. And I said, God, it would be great to, to get a baseball, a foul ball as a souvenir. God answered. All right? Ask specifically. So he's asking specifically, and he says, all right, so the girl who comes out uh, with a pitcher of water, and I ask her, hey, would you give me some water to drink? And then she says, yes, I'll give you some water, and I'll also water your camels. Let that be the girl, all right? Make it easy on me, God, so I don't have to try to be under stress about this whole situation. So verse 15, and it came to pass before he had done speaking, that behold, Rebekah came out, who was born to Bethuel, the son of Milcah, the wife of Nahor, Abraham's brother, with her pitcher upon her shoulder. And the damsel was very fair to look upon, a virgin. Neither had any man known her, and she went down to the well and filled her pitcher and came up. And the servant ran to meet her. I don't know, was it because she was a pretty girl that he ran to meet her? All right, I want to try my best of effort here. All right, here's a pretty girl. I'm going to go after her first and see what happens. And so he runs to approach her, and he begins the process. Verse 17, let me, I pray thee, drink a little water of thy pitcher. And she said, drink, my Lord. And she hasted and let down her pitcher upon her hand and gave him drink. And when she had, uh, was done giving him drink, she said, I will also draw water for thy camels also until they've done drinking. And she hasted and emptied her pitcher into the trough and ran again unto the well to draw water and drew for all of his camels. And the man, wondering at her, held his peace to wit whether the Lord had made his journey prosperous or not. Wow, does God really answer prayer this quickly? Is that how the, the God of my master Abraham, is this how he works? Is this the girl? All right, so he's, he's now the decision is out. All right, I think maybe she'll have something to say about this whole thing too. All right, so we'll see what's going on here. So let's just uh, pick it up here. Uh, verse 22, and it came to pass as the camels had done drinking that the man took a golden earring of half a shekel of weight and two bracelets for her hands of 10 shekels weight of gold and said, whose daughter art thou? Tell me, I pray thee, is there room in thy father's house for us to lodge in? And she said, I am. Uh, and she said unto him, I am the daughter of Bethel, the son of Milcah, which she bore unto Nahor. And she said, Moreover unto him, We have both straw and provender enough and room to lodge thee. And the man bowed down his head and worshipped the Lord. He's found Abraham's family. And that was one of the conditions that Abraham had set. So no wonder why he's bowing down in awe of who God is. God has answered his specific guidance, but also fulfilling his master's specific requests. So let's just uh, stop there for just a second and look here at all of this. Go back to verse 8. The question he has when he's back with Abraham, what if the woman is not willing to follow? What if she doesn't want to come? Well, then you're released of your oath. All right, so let's see if um, here, if Rebecca will be willing to go. Let's skip down to verses 57 and 58. And they said, we will call the damsel and inquire at her mouth. All right, so does she have a say in this? Yeah, absolutely. We're going to ask her. All right, so... Verse 58, and they called Rebekah and said unto her, Wilt thou go with this man? And she said, What? I will go. 
So here we, we see this quote arranged marriage, but Isaac doesn't know who he's getting, and she doesn't even have any clue who Isaac is. So what all is taking place before this is the contract. Now, if you read from where we stopped and you get down to verses 57 and 58, Abraham's servant begins to lavish the gifts. He, he's pouring out the, uh, the dowry. And so there's a, 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 a discussion here between the parents and so forth. And so he's like, well, wait a minute. <laughs> Maybe I'm getting ahead of myself here. We haven't even asked her all right, if she's willing. So we see the contract that's in place even before the marriage partners know who one another are. So the contract about the marriage is actually being established first. And so many times what a young couple has to do is they have to go get a marriage license application, right? Even before the marriage ceremony takes place. So that's not unusual. And so she agrees to go. And so this is why point number one it's a commitment of two people. She said, I'm willing to go. All right, so there was grace in her heart. I want to go. All right, so this is how this all worked out. Now, there are other examples, and we're going to spend some time here because this is what is important uh, to really know. Um, so she goes, and let's just pick up the, the story here. She begins to return with Abraham's servant. And uh, verse 60, she gets her parental blessing. Uh, Thou art our sister, behold, the mother of thousands. Be thou the the mother of thousands and millions, and let thy seed possess the gates of those who hate them. And Rebekah arose and her damsels, and they rode upon the camels and followed the man. And the servant took Rebekah and went his way. And Isaac came from the way of the well of uh, Lehi-Roi, for he dwelt in the south country. And Isaac went out to meditate in the field at the eventide, and he lifted up his eyes, and saw, and behold, the camels were coming. And Rebekah lifted up her eyes, and when she saw Isaac, she lighted off of her camel. For she had said unto the servant, What man is this that walketh in the field to meet us? And the servant had said, It is my master. Therefore she took a veil and covered herself. And the servant told Isaac all things that he had done. And Isaac brought her into his mother Sarah's tent and took Rebekah, and she became his wife, and he loved her, and Isaac was comforted after his mother's death. So Isaac was grieving. He lost his mom, and obviously he's not married to his dad, so he's not even married. He's just lonely, and so God solves this problem by bringing um, Rebekah to him. And so uh, i can you elaborate and read between the lines? Isaac's coming from the well and sees the caravan coming. Um, he knows most likely what the mission was. So he's probably pretty excited to go out and meet the caravan, right? He's going to get a, a bride, a wife. And um, I think here the bride is pretty excited too. Hey, who's that young man walking toward us? Boy, I hope that's my, my, my husband. I hope that's the groom. He's handsome. He's dashing. I hope so. All right. It is. Yippee! Jumps down off the camel and covers herself. When's the wedding ceremony? Let's go. All right. And so they have the, the ceremony then, and they become a married unit. All right. Now let's look and explain something about Jewish culture. Let's go to another example of this. Uh, let's go to Matthew chapter 1. So the beginning of the New Testament. Looking at verse 18. Now we know this from the Christmas stories. Right? Who doesn't like Christmas? Verse 18. Now the birth of Jesus Christ was on this wise. When his mother Mary was what? espoused. Now, we might try to put the word engagement in there. Our concept of engagement is nowhere close to what has happened here, right? So he uh, says here, the God says that she is the espoused wife, okay? 
to Joseph. Before they came together, she was found with child of the Holy Ghost. Then Joseph, her husband, being a just man and not willing to make her a public example, was minded to put her away privately. But while he thought on these things, behold, the angel of the Lord appeared unto him in a dream, saying, Joseph, thou son of David, fear not to take unto thee Mary, thy wife. Mary who? She's already his, it's already his wife, all right? So, well, you say, well, wait a minute. How can that be? Well, because the family contracts have already been exchanged. And a covenant has already been made. Now, a problem. Mary is expecting a child. Joseph and Mary have not known one another intimately. Joseph begins to think about this whole situation. He's bothered. How can this be? How can my wife, how can my bride be pregnant? I know I'm not the father here. I know that we've not even come together uh, in marital union yet. So he's thinking, I'm going to divorce her. It would take a legal proceeding here to divorce her because there's been a contract that has been established. And so a legal action would have to be taken for that to be broken. So think about that. We'll come back to that later when we get to divorce. So marriage is not in its foundational meaning physical activity between a husband and wife. Sexual activity in the Bible does not imply marriage. It is the blessing of marriage. An activity outside of marriage does not necessarily break the contract of companionship. Joseph is thinking about this. Do I do it or do I not do it? He can still take her to be fully his wife. And so God comes to him and explains it and says, now don't be afraid. Bring her all the way in. Finish off the whole marriage proceedings. She is your wife. Don't be afraid to take her and to have her. For that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. So when we understand sometimes when there's great pain in a marriage relationship where a spouse has not been faithful, you begin to contemplate, what are you going to do? And there's a lot of pain. Well, divorce is an option. That's what God shows us in this story here. And God told him, you don't have to take that that route because this is what God has done. All right. So just to review this point very quickly. All right. Uh, Well, let's go back to Genesis 2. I want to point out something to you. Look at the end of verse 18. God says that he will make a help, next word, meet. The perfect man needed help. Guys, humble yourselves. You need your wife. Wife, your husband needs you. Even if he thinks he's perfect, he still needs you. All right? So, Adam was a perfect man, but he needed help, all right? Now, the word meet here means someone who is perfectly corresponding to him, the the perfect one. Now, it doesn't mean here that he got his other half or his better half, all right? He became a whole person when he got Eve. All right? So this is the beauty of what God says marriage is. Marriage solves the problem of male and female loneliness. And we become a better man, a better person. We become a whole man, a whole person, 
by having our wife. You become a whole woman, a better woman, because you have your husband. And that's the phrase that we find there in Genesis 2.18. So perfectly corresponding to the other. Marriage is a creation that God has set up. So ever before there was government, which starts in Genesis 10 and 11, ever before there was uh, school, ever before there was uh, work, before any other human institution, there was a family. There was marriage that was already in place. And so this is why we say marriage is the foundational institution of any country. And when you attack the definition of marriage, you attack your country. You begin to destroy and weaken your country because you're destroying its foundations. So important for us to understand that this is God's divine institution. He's the sovereign owner of the concept of marriage, the sovereign God of regulations concerning marriage. He has this foundation, and even the church is built upon this foundation of marriage. So very quickly, let's go over to Ephesians 5, and then we'll move on to point 2, and we'll, we'll make it through today. This is why it's so important for us as Christians to teach and to talk about marriage. Because your marriage is a symbol. It is a living, theological, outworking of salvation, of Christ in his church. So your marriage is a wonderful way to those around you who are not Christians to see how Christ loved the church. But the church is built upon the foundation of marriage. So let's look at this. Ephesians chapter 5, beginning in verse 25. Husbands, love your wives, even as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for it, that he might sanctify and cleanse it with the washing of the water by the word, that he might present it to himself, a glorious church not having spot or wrinkle, or any such thing that it should be holy and without blemish. So ought men to love their wives as their own bodies. He that loveth his wife loveth himself. Okay, so for Christians, let's um, talk to men for just a second. If you love your wife, you, it's like loving your own self, all right, in your body. Now, don't think that you need to be so filled with self-love. And that's kind of arrogant, all right? What's being talked about here is the comparison of Christ in the church. And because Christ entered into a covenant with his church, he is a giving sacrificial husband. He'll do anything to fulfill his covenant. He'll even die, and Christ did die. Therefore, because Christ entered into a covenant with his church, when a husband enters into a covenant with his wife, then he loves her in the same way that Christ did because the church is Christ's body. And when you're married, your bodies belong to one another. So your wife's body is your body, all right? His body is your body, wives. So this is the basis of this is because of the covenant relationship. All right, now let's move on and let's go back to Genesis chapter 24. Marriage is a covenant of a man and a woman before God. Verse 51, Genesis 24. Now, Genesis 24 is the example, a marriage that shows us and portrays the covenant. Now, what is so important in this passage is the spiritual integrity of the marriage. Abraham makes the servant swear and promise by the living God that he will find the right wife for Isaac. So if we notice verse 51, when the servant goes to the household and he tells the whole story as it comes out, 
Rebekah's father says to him, Behold, Rebekah is before thee. Take her and go, and let her be thy master's son's wife. And what's the last phrase? As the Lord God hath spoken. So the spiritual integrity of a marriage relationship, it's so important. Marriage is a covenant that a man and a woman make before God. And even before this, Abraham, if you go back and you read the language, my God will lead you in the way when he gets there. God, help me. Make it easy on me so I know who the girl is. The girl that says, yes, have a drink and I'll water your camels as well. Let that be the girl. He was in prayer, the, the spiritual searching for God's directing. Every marriage is a covenant before God. And when we stand at the marriage altar, we say, so, you know, this is my covenant to you. This is my promise, my pledge. I betrothed myself to you in the presence of God and of these witnesses. So we're making a covenant to our spouse in the presence of God and one another. Do you know a Christian wedding is actually a worship ceremony? Because it portrays the gospel. It portrays the spiritual realities here of covenant, that God has entered into a covenant. Now, the grace affirmation is, I will keep my covenant to God and my spouse. Let's look at some examples of where God is criticizing people who didn't do that. Let's go to Proverbs chapter 2, verse 17. Uh, quickly, we'll just run through these and try not to elaborate too much. Chapter 2, verse 17, reads this way. Which forsaketh the guide of her youth and forgiveth the what? Covenant of her God. So a marriage relationship is a covenant before God. All right, uh, Malachi chapter 2, verse 14. So Malachi is going to take some of us a while to, to find that. But uh, the easy way to, to find that is to go to the last book of the Old Testament. Go to Matthew and turn back one. Chapter 2, verse 14 says this. Yet you say, Wherefore, because the Lord hath been witness between thee and the wife of thy youth, against whom thou hast dealt treacherously, yet she is thy what? Companion. And the wife of thy covenant. All right, so we, we might say that uh, a definition of a covenant is the promise that the husband makes to the, to the wife, the wife to the husband, I will be your companion for life. I will solve your loneliness. We will have common interests and goals. Um, listen to Ezekiel chapter 16, verse Eight. When I passed by you again and saw, behold, you were at the age for love, and I spread the corner of my garment over you and covered your nakedness, I made my vow to you and entered into a covenant with you, declares the Lord God, and you became mine. So marriage is a picture of the spiritual reality of God's covenant that he made with Israel. He said, it's like a young girl who is of courting age, she's of marriageable age, and I come and it's kind of this cultural thing where it spreads the corner of his garment over her. And so that's saying, hey, you want to get married? Okay. And so then they enter into their contract and their covenant. And so the Lord enters into a covenant with Israel and makes Israel his wife. So... God is faithful to keep his covenant. Isaiah 54, verse 10, For the mountains shall depart, and the hills be removed, but my kindness shall not depart from thee, 
Neither shall the covenant of my peace be removed, saith the Lord that hath mercy on thee. God is saying, I'm a God of integrity. I'm going to keep my covenant. And the mountains can fall down, but I'm going to keep my covenant. I am not going to be the one in this marriage relationship who's unfaithful. I am going to be faithful. So marriage is a covenant of a man and a woman before God. So keep the covenant to God and your spouse. All right, very quickly, we'll finish this up. Marriage is the companionship of a man and a woman. So go back to Genesis 24 and look at verse 67. And Isaac brought her into his mother's Sarah's tent and took Rebekah, and she became his wife, and he loved her, and Isaac was comforted after his mother's death. So they're now companions for life. So the grace affirmation, I will love the companionship of my spouse. I think this is what we could do better in our marriage ceremonies. Um, is express this idea of companionship because it's really a covenant of companionship. Now, if you're looking to help a marriage that's in trouble, do you know what your one goal as a counselor or an advisor would be? How to get these two people to be better companions? Pretty simple, straightforward. Because in some way, they're pulling apart from that companionship. Become the best companion that you can be for your spouse. This is what Jay Adams says, a marriage lacking companionship is headed towards misery or divorce. All that jeopardizes companionship must be avoided. Uh, whatever uh, promotes it must be cultivated. It. Cultivated. So learn how your spouse expresses love. Some, it's time. Some, it's acts of service. For some, it's words of affirmation. Um, but learn your spouse. Um, guys, let's not be lazy husbands. Um, have you ever been told something like this? We've been married a decade, two decades, three decades, and you still don't know? What she's saying is, are you really trying to be the best companion you can be here? Are you really trying to learn who I am? And so, husbands, the scripture says, dwell with your wife according to understanding. So marriage. Uh, let's go to Ezekiel 16, verse 8. I want to let your eyes see that, and then this message is almost done. Ezekiel 16. And verse 8. Now I passed by thee and looked upon thee. Behold, thy time was the time of love. And I spread my skirt over thee and covered thy nakedness. Yea, I swear unto thee and entered into a covenant with thee, saith the Lord God, and thou becamest mine. They became companions. Um, by swearing, by vowing, taking a covenant they became companions. So a companion is someone whom you are intimately united in thoughts, goals, plans, and efforts. And in the case of marriage, even the blessing of bodies. Do you know there's, really quickly, the different kinds of love? Philos, what is that? Brotherly love. Eros, which is physical love between a husband and wife. Um, then there's uh, agape love, which is God's covenant love. Um, and then there's storge. And it's not really talked about in the Bible so much. Um, it's mentioned in the sense in Timothy that in the last days people will be without natural what? Affection. So it's ah storge. Storge is that kind of love that there's just a natural affection between family but especially between a husband and wife, that kind of love which is a close union. And I'm going to ask you to close this message out 
by turning over to 1 Corinthians 6 and looking with me at verses 16 and 17. First Corinthians six sixteen and 17. What know ye not that he which is joined to a harlot is one body? For the two, saith he, shall be one flesh. But he that is joined unto the Lord is one spirit. Flee fornication. Every sin that a man doeth is without the body. But he that committeth fornication sinneth against his own body. So this one body, well, that's a close union, right? Um, people do that all the time. They, they are that close, all right? But that's not marriage, all right? This is just a carnal, fornicating kind of love that's taking place here. Um, and it's described here as that one body. Well, that's just a close union. Uh, they become one flesh even here, which is uh, there's part of them that gets involved in that whole situation, all right? And that's a closer union, but what is the closest union possible is verse 17. But he that is joined unto the Lord is what? Say it with me. One spirit. So the goal for Christian marriage is not just one flesh, It's not just becoming one body, which means when you come together as two, you become one person, all right? That's a close union, that's a closer union, but that you, when you become one, you become one also with the Lord, and you have the same spiritual goals and interests. That's the closest kind of marriage that there can be. So, I want you to walk away today being encouraged If you're married, you have a wonderful thing. Whoso finds a wife finds a wonderful thing. Marriage is wonderful. It's God's idea. It defeats loneliness in your life. Now, go, number one goal, grow deeper in that companionship with your spouse. And you'll begin to see that all getting better. So, learn your spouse. Take them on a date. Get her flowers, guys, even if she says she doesn't like flowers. Okay? Um, just invest in them. 